North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the podcast, The Impossible State, the CSIS podcast on all things Korea and the Indo-Pacific. My name is Victor Cha. I'm senior vice president and Korea chair here at CSIS. I'm normally a participant in the podcast, which is hosted by our senior vice president for external relations, Andrew Schwartz. But Andrew could not join us today, so I'm stepping in as the host. Um, and our guest is none other than Christopher Johnstone. For those of you who don't know Christopher Johnstone, well, not so recently, uh, joined CSIS. How long has it been, Chris? It's been seven months, if you can believe that. Seven months already? Wow. Um, so Chris Johnstone jo- has joined us at CSIS as senior advisor and our new Japan chair. Prior to coming to CSIS, uh, he served in the U.S. government for 25 years in a variety of senior positions with a focus on U.S. policy towards Japan and the Indo-Pacific. He served twice on the National Security Council as director for East Asia under President Biden and director for Japan and Oceanic Affairs under President Obama. He also was uh, in the office of the Secretary of Defense, where he led offices with responsibility for South and Southeast Asia, as well as East Asia. He was director for Northeast Asia, where he had principal responsibility for developing strategy for the U.S.-Japan alliance. Chris began his career as intelligence officer uh, at that place over in Langley, uh, where he worked on national security issues in Northeast Asia. He is a graduate of Princeton University and Swarthmore College. So, Chris, thank you so much uh, for joining us on The Impossible State. Great to be here. Great. Thanks. You are Clearly, one of our most experienced experts um, in the U.S. government and in the broader think tank community on Japan. So I thought we'd spend some time talking about Japan today, if that's okay, because there's a lot. There's a lot that's been going on. Um, the joke around town here in D.C. For those of you who are listeners who don't normally reside inside the Beltway, is that uh, this month is not January. It's called Japanuary because of all the things that have been happening with Japan. And I thought we could start the conversation, Chris, by first giving us your thoughts on this new national defense strategy that the Japanese government has recently announced. It's certainly gotten a lot of news and folks are trying to understand the significance of it. Maybe you could give us your thoughts on how significant you think this uh, these new uh, announcements uh, have been uh, in the broader history and also what are some of the highlights that, that come across to you. Thanks, Victor. Again, really a great pleasure to be here. Yeah, quite a historic time uh, in Japan and in the U.S.-Japan relationship. I think, frankly, looking back on all the years that I spent working on the relationship, what we're seeing now is change that, that frankly, a few years ago would have been pretty 
pretty unimaginable. There's been a lot of uh, strong, almost hyperbolic rhetoric to describe it. I happen to think that a lot of that rhetoric is pretty justified. Uh, I mean, Japan, I think it's fair to say most people would characterize as a country of incremental change. Whether that's a fair characterization or not, I think it's definitely fair to say that security policy, defense policy has been the most incremental and basically inelastic area of, of evolution in Japan's post-war development. Uh, and so what was announced in December in Japan's new strategies uh, represents a dramatic departure from that history. Two dimensions um, of that. First is the amount of spending, defense spending that they, that they announced that they would embark upon. Uh, so this is a country that for 50 years had a policy, first formal, then informal, of not spending more than 1% of GDP on defense. Well, the, the trajectory they announced in mid-December puts them on a path toward around 1.6% of GDP in five years. So that's 60% growth uh, in five years. Uh, there's been some headlines that say they're going to 2%. Some of the, you know, the statements coming out of the Japanese government say 2%. That's when they add on some other categories of spending. Uh, it's really about 1.6%, but dramatic change. So that that's significant. And then the second piece is what they're what they're going to spend it on. And in particular, a lot of attention has been focused on this counter-strike capability, and in particular, the plans to acquire Tomahawk cruise missiles. Uh, I do think that's important. Uh, Japan's never had a power projection capability like that, quite transformative in a number of ways, potentially. Uh, but other capabilities as well, things like uh, really strengthening their, their cyber capability, for example. Uh, so it's a departure, a significant departure in those two ways, the amount of spending and the kind of capabilities that they've decided they're going to acquire. Uh, and, you know, as I said, just a few years ago, it would have been pretty hard to imagine. When we talk about um, sort of the, uh, you mentioned the history of incremental change like, I mean, do you really classify this as sort of one of the real benchmarks when we think about the evolution of Japan's defense policy? I mean, we think of the um, Yoshida Doctrine and we think about Nakasone and Reagan, reinterpretation of the uh, right of collective self-defense. Where would you put this in the category of these sorts of benchmarks in Japanese de defense policy? I would definitely characterize this as an inflection point. All those leaders that you noted uh, played important roles. Y Yoshida, back in the 50s, set the, the fundamental parameters of Japan's restrained defense policy. Nakasone was the first to really begin to loosen those, uh, you know, his, his commitment to protect sea lanes out to a thousand, out to a thousand miles. Uh, although in the end, there wasn't all that much behind that, but it was a real, it was a real commitment and it did drive change inside the ministry. Koizumi, of course, you know, sent troops to Iraq contributed to Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. That was important. But the laws that enabled Japan to do that had sunset clauses. So when the laws expired, Japan went back to the policies it had before. Uh, Abe uh, was very important to the Japan's evolution. But his, his reforms were in the space of sort of legal reform, policy reform, institutional reform. Uh, this is material change, right? Now this is Japan spending money, buying stuff, planning to, to operate uh, in different ways. So I do view it as a, as a pretty important pretty important departure point. Now, I mean, there are lots of ways that this could go south. I mean, implementation will be a major issue. 
There's a debate, as you know, about how to pay for all this in Japan. But I think the trajectory has been set, and I don't, I don't see it changing, frankly, Victor. Yeah, I was going to ask you, actually, you, you, I was just going to ask you the point that you raised, which is, so this is, a, you know, they're talking about effectively a 60% increase in defense spending. At their old mark of 1% of GDP, uh, people don't realize that was still a substantial number, right, given the size of Japan's economy. A 60% increase, was it over five years or so? It's over five years. So by, 20, by 2027. That is, that's a huge number. That's a huge number. So how are they going to pay? How are they going to pay for this? Yeah. So this is this is the this is the the challenge I think. So what the Kishida government has done is they've looked at this and they came out with a proposal uh, in December that said three quarters of this buildup we can figure out how to pay for by reallocating funds, cutting spending in certain areas, shifting money around in existing accounts. The last quarter to 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 fund that final twenty five percent. He proposed tax increases, corporate tax increases, sin tax increases, some other forms of revenue. That sparked a rebellion in the LDP and particularly inside the old Abe faction who have been opposed. They, they're obviously very supportive of the buildup, but they don't think the taxes are necessary to, to increase taxes are necessary to pay for it. This will be the fight. Really, it's going to play out over 2023 over this this piece. But the two points I would make is, number one, we're only talking about 25% of the total buildup that's been announced that's at issue here. And number two, the end state has been set out as policy. I don't see it changing. I think at the end of the day, the Japanese government will issue debt if they have to, to cover this gap. So I think they're going to get there. Uh, certainly the history is once they set a policy and set a number, they generally achieve it. So I think that's where we're headed. Right. So the fallback might be debt issuance, but still the notion that 75% of this would come from reapportioning other elements of the budget suggests that there might be a lot of fat in the budget. But I, but I mean, how do you do something like that without actually cutting bone, I guess would be the question I have. Because 75% is a large, that's a large amount. It's true. I, and I think, uh, so what I would expect but don't know for certain yet is that as they get into this, they'll realize that they have to they have to generate more revenue than they're saying right now, uh, and therefore the tax debate will become even more even more consequential. It's hard for me to believe that they won't in the end land on some form of tax increases. It is true that when you when you look at public opinion polls on this, not surprisingly, right? Japanese public is very supportive of the buildup, very unsupportive of the tax increases. So. That's the that's the tightrope that has to be walked here politically. But again, I don't think that the end state that's been set out is at issue. Uh, we'll see, but I don't think so. Maybe I could also ask you about, you talked about power projection capabilities for the first time, Tomahawks and eventually their own indigenous capabilities. To what extent did they, does the strategy talk about the uh, the purpose of these capabilities uh, does it talk explicitly about Taiwan? Does it talk explicitly about North Korea? How does the national security strategy frame the external environment in which these capabilities are being developed? Yeah, so it doesn't describe, you know, that that strike is for this particular purpose to strike this particular country. What what it does do is it says, first of all, as an overarching statement, that the security environment in East Asia is the most severe and complex since the end of World War II. That's pretty strong language. 
It references China as Japan's principal strategic challenge. Then it talks at length about North Korea and, and of course, references at some length uh, the impact of the war, the war in Ukraine. So that's the environment uh, against which these new capabilities are talked about. Now, what's interesting in the strategy, of course, is that the Kishida government is at pains to say that these new acquisitions, including strike, don't represent a departure from Japan's post-war defense policy. And it's true that since the 1950s, the Japanese have, have said that the Constitution does not prevent us from acquiring long-range strike. They've said that for decades. But still, it, it's, there is no denying two things, that this reflects a different concept of deterrence, right? A sense that it's not enough just for Japan to be able to hit forces that are already attacking. They need to hold at risk fixed military infrastructure inside an adversary at range. So that's new. Um, and the other thing that, that will play out more over time is, I think, the impact on the U.S.-Japan alliance, which is to say that this is a capability that's going to require pretty heavy reliance on U.S.-ISR, targeting, battle damage assessment, you know, what we call in a Korea context, right, the kill chain. And so it will change the U.S.-Japan alliance, too, as we, as we move toward what's going to be required of more, more integration, basically. So that conversation, will that happen under some new U.S.-Japan body, or do you think that'll happen within the context of the current defense and deterrence dialogues? And I mean, I presume the United States has been aware that, that Japan was headed in direction. Perhaps some of the groundwork is already being laid for that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this Tomahawk discussion, for example, has been underway for, for several months started actually when I was still on the NSC. And there has been a very concerted uh, decision at the sort of the highest levels of the U.S. government to support Japan as it goes down this path. So there's been a quiet dialogue uh, underway for some time about strike. That'll accelerate more and come into the open more as they look at sort of the technical pieces of how to do this. The Japanese, what they want, right, they want tomahawks deployed on their Aegis destroyers by 2026. That's an ambitious timeline, but I think certainly from what I'm hearing inside the U.S. government, there's an intent to, to support that to the degree that we can. Uh, and the discussion is moving forward. Great. Great. That's terrific. Um, maybe we could shift gears a little bit and talk about the, what followed the national defense statements, and that was the two plus two between the two foreign and defense ministers of the U.S. and the ROK, and then, of course, the summit meeting between President Biden and Prime Minister Kishida. Your thoughts, highlights of this, some things that surprised you or that you applauded, things that you might not have liked about particularly the summit meeting? Yeah, I think the first point that I would make is the sequencing here is deliberate, right? Maybe not the, not, not the prime minister's visit, because I think that specific timing of that came together more recently. But the plan for Japan to issue a national defense strategy in December and for there to be a two plus two in January, that's been the plan for like 10 months. So there's a deliberate sequencing here uh, that reflects in a lot of ways, I think, kind of an integration, a coming together of their strategy and ours in a kind of interesting way. Uh, and the two plus two really did have some, some significant deliverables. Uh, in particular, um, related to U.S. force posture in Japan, the standing up of what's called the Marine Littoral Regiment, a uh, new uh, structure inside the Marine Corps, new unit 
um, that has particular capabilities that are designed basically for a Taiwan fight and to and anticipating what a conflict with China might look like. So dispersible, small units, anti-ship missiles, mobile ISR, all that sort of stuff. Um, so that, that was kind of the flagship thing that was announced. And what was significant to me was how quickly that negotiation was concluded. I was there when the initial presentation to the Japanese was made early last year. Uh, and it seemed ambitious to be done with this on that timeline. But I think it speaks to Japan's comfort with our strategy, their own focus on building up force posture in Japan's southwest, their own concerns about a Taiwan contingency, etc. And there are other things that in the 2 plus 2 that were announced as well, expansion of training and exercises bilaterally in that region, for example. So consequential, consequential deliverables. The Kishida visit to the White House didn't have as many deliverables, but that was that was Uh, deliberate, really, in a sense. It was designed to kind of be a victory lap on all that's been done. I think inside the White House, Kishida is viewed as a consequential Japanese leader. There's a lot of appreciation for the role he played in pushing Japanese support for Ukraine, which helped, I think, really to bring a lot of other Asian countries into the mix in supporting Ukraine and punishing Russia, right? Uh, And then, of course, this national security strategy. So uh, that was obviously very welcomed here. So that was, those were the highlights. Um, and the intent was to sort of use this to kind of boost Uz Kishida. He gave a speech at SICE, you know, other, other pieces as well. As I said, implementation is going to be the big challenge here, right? Trying to grow your defense budget by 60% in five years without growing the size of the, the SDF itself. In other words, working within the constraints of your existing manpower, it's going to be really challenging. There are myriad ways in which this can go off track. Prioritization is going to be pretty important. Focus on getting a few things right and building momentum. But uh, I think there's no getting around the fact that this was a pretty, pretty important period for Japan and also for the U.S.-Japan relationship. That's great. Um, so we know what the U.S. reaction to this has been, which has been very positive and very supportive and Clearly a lot of work for the alliance to do together um, going forward, really putting the alliance into a new phase, right, with these new capabilities on the part of Japan. Your thoughts on reactions by by others around the region? I'd particularly love to hear your uh, thoughts on reactions uh, by China. I've, you know, sort of tracked the South Korean reaction and the South Korean president's reaction, which I thought was actually quite interesting. Uh, When he was asked about it, it was almost as, you know, we were talking about this when we were on the Hill the other day, it was almost as if he was he was neither making a full-throated statement of support nor criticism of it. He kind of, it was almost a set of remarks that kind of sounded like he was shrugging his shoulders, like, what else do you expect them to do? I mean, North Korea's firing missiles over their head. You know, China's making daily incursions into their EZs. Like, what else do you expect them to do? It was very, it was a very unusual, I would say, a very unique reaction by a South Korean leader to any discussion of Japanese security posture. Yeah, I totally agree, Victor. I was I was very struck by that reaction as well. I do know that there was a preview of all of this done at a pretty senior level between the two governments. So perhaps that helped. But I thought I thought that was a very striking reaction uh, as well. Look, I mean, you know, predictably, Beijing and Pyongyang were. <laughs> Very critical of all this, you know, taking us down the path of war, 
can't forget history, these sorts of um, tropes, really. What was interesting to me, though, is how there's really no particular reaction at all out of other parts of the region. And I think nothing out of Southeast Asia, for example, right? Also places that experienced um, Japanese colonization, right, before the war. I just think it speaks to how views of Japan have changed. For most of the region, that history is now gone, and there is more comfort and trust um, in the role that Japan plays in the region, and also probably more recognition of the very real security threats. So that's also, I thought, and I, and I would just also to add on that, I mean, I think, frankly, if you're honest about it, um, there was a time when the United States might not have been all that supportive of some dimensions of this, particularly the counter-strike part. And there would have been concern about regional reaction and all that, even just a few years ago. And um, so I think in a number of ways, sort of across the board, perspectives on, on this have changed. I mean, it would have been quite much more complicated if you had a very strong, like, South Korean reaction that would have complicated things. Uh, your restriction from Australia has been very supportive. And like you said, in the region, there hasn't been a, a lot of opposition to that at all. So, um, so yeah, I mean, in a sense, things have, things have changed quite a bit. Let's sort of shift a little bit more in our remaining time and love to sort of dig a little bit on where we are in terms of Japan, South Korea, bilateral relations. You know, we know that there are these negotiations going on between the two sides on sort of labor conscription issues, history issues, I would say that there there have been three clear signals on foreign policy coming from new Yin administration. One of them has clearly been on the relationship with the United States. The other has been on North Korea, where uh, they clearly support denuclearization. But at the same time, they have this so-called audacious initiative, if North Korea is willing to engage. But the third really has been Japan. And it's probably been the most, the biggest shift and arguably the most costly signal that the Yun government has sent really going against the currents of the past administration and trying to improve relations with Japan. Um, in the August, uh, traditionally there's a speech given by the South Korean president on August 15th, the day of liberation from Japanese uh, occupation, in which he gave a speech that was unusually forward-looking, talking about how Korea and Japan must deal with the issues at hand and in the future and then I think he said the past will take care of itself, which is the complete opposite algorithm than most Korean presidents take, which is to start talking about the past and say, without resolving the past, we can't talk about the present or the future. So some costly signaling there. I'd be curious to know what your views are on whether any of that is working uh, with Japan and, and any thoughts you have on sort of the current state of the discussions taking place between the two sides. The bottom line is I do think it's working. Um, slowly. And I, I think the first point to make is, boy, there's a lot of my momentum trilaterally, right? The U.S., Japan, ROK. And not just in the defense space. I mean, I think that's been very important to re-energize exercises, trilateral defense dialogue, etc. I think that's all very positive um, and, and good that we're back to a robust program. But the, also the expansion of dialogue into new areas, uh, including, as was announced in the joint statement coming out of Pompen, uh, the plans to have a trilateral dialogue related to economic security issues. That is really welcome, and I think it reflects a shared understanding that the interests of these two countries are about much more than just the Korean Peninsula. 
there's a wider frame. And I think South Korea's own new Indo-Pacific strategy sort of underscores uh, the, those commonalities that we also have. Can, but before, before you go bilaterally, let me just add for our listeners that um, if you have not read the Phnom Penh U.S.-Japan-Korea trilateral statement, it's really worth reading. Government cogs in the machine like Chris and myself will spend hours, days, if not weeks, negotiating the language of those sorts of documents, which never get read by uh, by many uh, in the general public. But uh, th- this really is a it's an outstanding and unprecedented document about the the agenda for the three for the three countries. Something things we've seen bilaterally, of course, but we've never seen it in a trilateral format. Drawing attention to that, I think, is fully justified because you've got to give the three governments credit for producing a, a document like this at this particular time. Yeah, and maybe just to add one one specific point on top of, of that, Victor, you know, the commitment to begin moving toward real-time data sharing related to missile threats, hugely important and completely, I think, unnoticed by a lot of Washington. I mean, if you were to eventually construct an integrated missile defense architecture in East Asia. And I'm not saying that's where we're headed. But if you were, your first step would be to do this kind of information sharing. So very significant that there was political will and commitment to, to do that on all three sides. And by the way, something that we recommended in our extended deterrence report as well, which is also available on CSIS.org. That's also a document worth reading. Um, but go ahead, Chris, on any thoughts on where we are in bilateral relations and these very quiet negotiations that are taking place? Yeah, so I, the, the negotiations have been uh, ongoing pretty intensively for a number of months. I think, Victor, you and I both know who these negotiators are, right? And I think they both have credibility with the other, which is, I think, important. My sense is that we are approaching the point where the negotiators have done maybe all that they can do. And that we're approaching the point where, you know, it'll be a political decision by leaders as to whether um, this is an agreement that could be consummated. It's hard for both sides. The politics are really hard for both sides. And there's emotion on both sides, I think, about, you know, what's happened in past agreements. I remain optimistic, though, that both of them, both sides will see it as in their interest uh, to to get an agreement on the forced labor issue and and put this uh, behind them. And I do think, you know, the prospect of, of doing this at a time when, I mean, Prime Minister Keisha faces some political headwinds. I still believe he's going to be a- around for a while. Uh, and certainly President Yoon is still at the beginning of his term. So, you know, if they're able to get an agreement done now, I think it has, my view would be, a good chance of of getting baked into the systems on both sides and being durable. But, you know, that's a a dicey proposition, I realize. I mean, on the Japanese side, you know, with something like this, you could argue there's never a good time to do something like this. But relatively speaking, in the Japanese political calendar and other things that the Kishida government is having to deal with in in Japan, is this uh, relatively speak, you know, understanding that no time is a good time for a controversial agreement, relatively speaking, is 2023, the first half of 2023, the second half of 2020, is there like a relatively less bad time, I guess would be the way to put it. So, 
Yeah. So a few months ago, I would have said this is the this is uh, the best time possible to do it. You know, there was a period right after the upper house election last July. Prime Minister Kishida was riding high in the polls. The the narrative was that no elections for the next three years, golden era. That is a lot less certain now, admittedly, uh, as Kishida's approval ratings have have dropped. It's stabilized a bit over the last few weeks. My own view is that likely to recover as we get deeper into the year and the G7 events come up. But there's a little more uncertainty about what the horizon is before the next election. But all that said, I, I guess I would still say, just as you framed it, Victor, never a good time, but maybe this is a, a less bad time or something like this, particularly for a leader who wants and is clear, clearly sees himself as a historical figure. On the Korean side, I mean, President Yoon, you know, has his, has his habit of saying controversial things every time he talks to the press. His most recently have been his statements on Iran while he was in, in UAE, which I think certainly didn't, didn't help things. But, you know, overall, overall you know, he's, it, his popularity has gone up. Right. He's now uh, I think he's now just over 40 points now, which is, um, you know, in today's day and age, a Democratic leader who's over 40 points. That's pretty good, relatively. And, you know, they they don't have an election this year. The Koreans are pushing very hard for a visit to Washington this spring, uh, summit meeting this spring, given the 70th anniversary of the alliance, the 70th anniversary of the Korean War armistice, you know, in the aftermath of a summit. Uh, in the early spring might be might also be a good time for on the on the Korean side. So, but you never know. I mean, we all know that domestic politics is a dark tunnel. That's why none of us really do it. <laughs> we focus on we focus on the uh, external relations rather than the rather than the internal. This was a fantastic discussion. Uh, very complex topic that uh, that you that you've done a great job of explaining to our listeners, so that they have a very good understanding both of the details and the historical significance of these new uh, the new Japan uh, national defense strategy, and also the implications for the United States and Korea. So, uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us on the Impossible State. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Keep subscribing to our podcast, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much. Thanks, Victor. Appreciate the opportunity. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.com. .csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.